This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Travel Medicine. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Globally, travel is a $5.8 billion industry. This was halted in 2020 by the COVID-19 pandemic, which put a pause on not only business travel, but also leisure travel. But in this now post-vaccine era, we're seeing a new type of surge, a surge of revenge travel. Countries have loosened their COVID-19 restrictions and borders are now open to tourism again. As a result, everyone is going on vacation. A recent report from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis showed that travel and tourism saw a 64% increase in 2021 after decreasing 50% in 2020. And in January 2023, air travel demand has now exceeded 2019 levels. But traveling can also have its risks. Travelers can experience environmental risks such as altitude, insects, foodborne illnesses. Travel can also put individuals at risk for infections and accidents. Patients can often benefit from counseling with their physician prior to travel to mitigate these risks. So to discuss travel medicine and how best to address our patients' health while traveling, I've invited two of Ohio State University's experts. I am pleased to introduce Associate Professor of Family Medicine, Dr. Allison Masarello, who practices primary care and is a leader in medical education. And I also have Dr. Sharon Clark, who is an assistant professor of internal medicine who practices both adult and pediatric hospital medicine. She has a special interest in global health and founded and directs the Global Health Interest Group at Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. Allison, Sharon, welcome to MedNet. Thank you, Jing Jing. 
Um, now, Allison, is it only international travel that we need to be concerned about, or are there also recommendations we should adhere to or discuss with our patients for domestic travel? Thank you. Great question. So our talk today is mostly focusing on international travel because that's sort of has the highest risk for patients. Mm -hmm. But I give travel advice all the time for many of my patients that might include patients that have chronic conditions such as requiring oxygen or even patients who are on dialysis who like to travel and make mm -hmm. that part of their regular um, protocol. Then also there are um, even emerging infections even within the U.S. Uh, Columbus recently had a issue with measles and so you know giving travel advice for local communities is also effective and important to do as well. Mm -hmm. Okay perfect and Sharon are there certain age groups or certain medical conditions that would cause you to discourage or um, tell a patient not to travel? That's a good question Jingjing. Jing. Um, I would say in general, not necessarily, but we should counsel our patients in specific situations. Um, for example, I might caution travel for really young infants, um, <clears throat> especially if they have not had their immunizations or if they're younger than 90 days of age. Mm -hmm. um, that might put them at risk for developing worse uh, complications from certain infections. So I would definitely um, talk to the family physician or pediatrician in those cases. Mm -hmm. In addition, uh, pregnant women who are greater than 36 weeks weeks along um, are generally discouraged from air travel or traveling too far away from their OB provider or the place that they're going to deliver. Mm. Um, and if they have certain risks for complications like preeclampsia or preterm labor, um, that might cause some additional risks and so they should definitely be talking with their OB. Mm -hmm. um, another situation to think about is patients who might be at more risk for deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolus. Um, in those patients, if they're going to be traveling for long periods, say greater than four hours or so, whether it's by car, by train, or airplane, um, we might want to counsel them about those risks and take some additional precautions. Um, for example, wearing compression stockings, making sure they're moving their legs, um, encouraging ambulation as frequently as possible, and adequate hydration. So in general though, if anyone has um, chronic medical conditions, we would want to make sure that they're at least well controlled um, and not an active problem. Okay, perfect, that's very helpful. Before we get started today, don't forget to send us your questions using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast player. We're also starting our yearly needs assessment process, which means we want to hear from you about what topics you are interested in seeing on the program for next season. You can complete our needs assessment survey on our website at go.osu.edu slash medned21 and clicking the link for the survey there or you can use the QR code on the slide here to access the survey directly. You can also find all 120 of our webcasts cataloged on our website by, by um, searching for the programs that you're interested in. And you can also listen to our programs by podcast by searching for MedNet 21 CME wherever you like to get your podcasts. Now let's get started. Allison. Thank you, Jingjing. Yeah, I'd love to start talking about travel medicine and um, I want to first by discussing our objectives for today's course. So most importantly is identify the benefits, which I think we all can assess, and also the risks of travel abroad. We want to be able to provide travel advice to a wide range of travelers and recognize that a returning traveler has additional risks than a person um, who's coming from the community. 
I'm going to be focusing my talk on pre-travel counseling, and let's start with a case. Reagan is a 21-year-old female traveling to Argentina for a four-week Spanish immersion experience. She's excited, but her parents are nervous. What are the next steps? I think we could all identify as uh, parents that this might be a, something we might come across frequently. Let's talk about some basics in pre-travel assessment. Um, there's a statistics that says that only a minority of international travel seek pre-travel counseling, about 36%. And of those seeking assistance, only 60% see a primary care physician, 10% do see a travel specialist, but 30% turn to family and friends for their counseling. We certainly want to make sure we take advantage of those who seek counseling with a primary care physician. We do have some statistics that say that individuals who are returning to their country of origin are less likely to consult a physician before travel. And because of this, preventable systemic illness is seen more commonly in this group. There may be some reasons behind this. They may not identify that they have risks, or again, the travel may be more to see family and friends that may pose slightly higher risk than uh, tourism. Um, we do assess that patients should seek travel advice about six weeks prior to travel so that we can make sure we give all the best advice and give immunizations that are necessary. So pre-trip assessment. <clears throat> Your first job is to get the details. You want to know all about the trip, when they're going, what their itinerary, and special notes. That would be things like going to small towns, rural villages, if they're going to be engaging in high-risk activities, working with animals, um, and or doing healthcare or healthcare-related activities. Those would all be things we'd want to know ahead of time. Some background on travel, Jingjing already alluded to some of these things, but um, since 2012, over 1 billion travelers cross international borders, and that the travel industry has come back. It um, is returning quickly, and levels for 2023 should reach 80 to 90 95% of pre-pandemic levels, with the highest being from Europe and the Middle East. What kind of information should you provide? Well, you should counsel patients about common things. Things such as seat belts and helmets, those are real risks in and outside the country. Safety, such as theft, but also high-risk activities that we alluded to in some of the other things. We should be providing counseling about alcohol, alcohol use, misuse, and the risks associated. We should be providing information about safe sex and pregnancy prevention and sun exposure, right? A lot of folks are going to countries where the sun um, intensity is different than our country of origin. So certainly want to provide all those basic things to every patient that comes in for pre-travel assessment. Let's go to another case, Mary. Here in our picture is a 72-year-old female traveling to China on her dream trip. She's going in three months, so we are thrilled that she's come in to seek advice and talk about what kind of information she needs. Any traveler, we should be assessing for chronic conditions, their medications, recent hospitalizations, injuries, limitations, problems. Um, we should anticipate the expected and the unexpected, certainly in the expected, um, such as maybe Mary has problems with frequent UTIs. We may want to 
um, assess that and discuss prophylaxis in the case of a situation while she's traveling. In the traveler, we should discuss where and how to seek assistance. The CDC has advice on where to seek assistance in the country they're traveling to, and that's a resource they sh you should tell patients about. You may want to discuss with patients about travel insurance and evacuation insurance. Those can be ex expect expenses they are not anticipating, but may be important for the traveler that has known health conditions. On Mary's trip to dream trip to China, we want to continue talking about her medical conditions. Uh, we may want to talk about how stable those conditions should be, whether she has any additional needs such as oxygen or um, how to get in and out, out of a plane uh, safely, <clears throat> how to prevent in, uh, complications, and then talking about medications. Medications should always be carried on the plane or with their person at all times. They should keep a list handy, which has uh, both the medications, doses, and what it's taken for. The reason you should carry on medications should seem simple, but they could be prevent loss. You can be aware of temperature irregulations, and then there's a reduced risk of confiscation or theft. Here's one more case. Josh is a medical student traveling to Honduras for a 10-day medical mission. What immunizations does he need? And gosh, what do we do about malaria? We already have identified with Josh that he has no medical problems, takes no medications, and we're going to provide basic travel advice, of course, to our um, student and patient. I want to turn your attention to this slide, which is from the Center for Disease Controls, or CDC. And this is the Traveler's Health, and they have a landing page where, where the red arrow shows I have um, elected Honduras um, from a drop-down menu. The database starts with Afghanistan, ends at Zimbabwe, and there are almost 300 countries to choose from in between. So very robust data resource for your information. This next slide is the landing page for the country of planned origin for our patient Josh going to Honduras. As you can see, there's lots of things that you could provide, travel notices, advice for travelers, where to find a clinic, and um, clinician resources. I certainly recommend my patients who have uh, significant health literacy to review this information. It is written at a basic information, so most travelers can use this. Um, it includes travel notices and even a packing list. Um, so we would use this information to help us guide our information to our traveler. We talked about what immunizations Josh might need for travel. And I just want to call your attention to common things happen commonly. And we want to make sure that Josh, who's a medical student, we would presume that he's up to date with all of his immunizations. Um, as needed to work in healthcare, but we certainly want to review those and could be important for any traveler. This might be a great way to convince the reticent person about vaccinations. I will point out that COVID restrictions and vaccination status is a revolving issue, and you should seek both local restrictions, requirements, and the country of origin to seek vaccination and or testing requirements. And we anticipate that may continue changing over time. <clears throat> there are some travel-specific vaccines that I've uh, put up here on the slide and should be reviewed uh, on, based on the planned country of origin. 
I want to point out just two vaccinations on this list, um, as some of them are very specific and might be only for uh, endemic areas. Um, however, typhoid fever should be considered for all travelers to low-income countries who are also focusing on rural or longer duration. And then yellow fever. Um, yellow fever, which is used for tropical Africa and South America, there was an inability to get the yellow fever vaccine for a few years, but I want to uh, note that as of April 2021 is available again in the U.S. And on my search, there were six locations in Franklin County listed on the CDC website that you could obtain the yellow fever vaccine. There are some countries that require very strict vaccination status for yellow fever, but those will be noted on the CDC website. Let's go back to our student, Josh, and his travel to Honduras. As um, this again is from the CDC website from their drop down menu on vaccinations that may be indicated. He has no planned travel in that would put him at higher risk for rabies. So even though it's included here, that's not um, indicated for his use, um, though he would be recommended to have typhoid. Uh, vaccination if he is not up to date with this vaccine. This vaccine can be obtained in two different ways. One is an oral vaccine, which is a live vaccine, so may not be appropriate for all travelers, and that can be obtained through prescription at your local pharmacy or through injection. And most uh, patients can only obtain typhoid injection through a travel clinic. It's important that we discuss insects, arthropod um, infections, uh, such as dengue, Zika, malaria, and many others. Let's start about some basics with bug and bite prevention. It's important that you would apply a 20 to 50% DEET solution, but avoid children less than two months due to absorption and neurotoxicity. It's important that you wear long pants sleeves and apply consider applying permethrin to clothing that will not touch the skin. As our picture of the lovely uh, scene up in the right-hand corner with dusk or dawn, unclear, um, it's important that you actually avoid dusk or dawn and nighttime due to increased uh, arthropod infections or activity. And the picture on the left shows safety kits of bug spray and mosquito nets. Nets are best when they're um, extend to the floor and tucked under the mattress. Please ensure that you counsel patients on each of these ideas and provide written information about the same to um, read prior to travel. It's a lot of information that comes across in each thing, so we want to make sure they're prepared. I'll also take a moment to discuss Zika. Zika is still a potential issue, and Zika is the highest risk to those who are pregnant or considering uh, conception, and it's important to note that even men traveling who um, contract Zika can transmit that through intercourse. However, at the time of this recording, there were no active outbreaks of Zika, but scattered cases throughout the world. Still an infection to uh, consider. This large and overwhelming tab table is important to review. Um, First and foremost about malaria prophylaxis is that you only choose a medication that is effective in that area, and that is going to be through the CDC website in the travel country of origin. 
And then you're going to discuss with the patient and choose medications based on patient preference. So we'll discuss with Josh, our medical student, about different aspects to help choose a medication. So some things to point out are there are medications that can be used daily or weekly. There are medications that may be started only one to two days prior to travel and only need to be extended for a week after return. And then there are some medications that must be started two weeks prior to travel and even um, extended four weeks after return. The three I use most frequently are doxycycline, which does have some side effects such as nausea and sun sensitivity. The second is uh, tovaquan combined with proguanin, which has a higher cost and however should be avoided in pregnancy and kidney disease, but its uh, daily dosage um, it can be used um, and for only a short period of time. And lastly, mefloquine, which can cause issues with mood and should be avoided in those with seizure and cardiac conduction issues, but is a weekly dosage, so it can be um, interesting to some patients. Please note that short and long-term travelers do take the same medications for, for malaria prophylaxis, so it is not different based on that. However, long-term travelers have a higher risk, and that's mostly due to length of exposure to potential malaria. It's important that we also discuss travelers' diarrhea, prevention, and treatment. This is the most common infectious disease while traveling. There has been prior um, information given to patients that it's important to avoid street food, tap water, ice, and raw foods. And while this is not bad advice to continue giving to patients, it is actually not shown a statistical difference in outcomes. In fact, the only statistical difference has been related to hand washing and the use of alcohol-based hand sanitizer. So make sure they bring along lots of hand sanitizer when they're traveling. Um, there is also discussion of whether patients should have antibiotics. It is important to note that antibiotics likely are not necessarily unless they're a higher risk traveler and should not be used unless they have severe symptoms. Severe symptoms would include things like intractable symptoms, fever, inability to participate in regular activities. Due to um, emerging uh, resistance patterns and um, susceptibility, the current recommendation is most likely to use azithromycin at 1,000 milligrams in divided dose over one day. We have covered the key areas of pre-travel planning and assessment, including how to counsel patients, when to start travel planning, where to find information on the CDC website, and ways to keep patients safe from arthropod infections and medications used for prevention. I would like to turn it over to Dr. Clark, who will be discussing post-travel evaluation and assessment. <clears throat> Thank you, Dr. Maserello. Um, hello, I'm Dr. Sharon Clark, and I'll be discussing the next portion of our talk, which is on post-travel evaluation recognizing that a returning traveler does have additional risks compared to an average person from the community. As medical providers, we need to be aware of these additional risks so that we can ask the right history questions, look for the right exam findings, and perform an appropriate workup. However, we should keep in mind that common things are still common, 
and that routine illnesses such as upper and lower respiratory tract infections, sinusitis, urinary tract infections, and viral infections such as influenza um, should still be on our differential. About 8% of travelers to developing countries do seek medical care while they're away or soon after they return. And although fever in the returning traveler may be caused by mild illness, it may also be a sign of a potentially lethal infection. Let's go over a very common travel-related illness, diarrhea. Tom is a 50-year-old male with complaints of bloody diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea, and intermittent fevers for the last five days. We find out that he has just recently returned from a vacation with his family to Thailand over the holidays. What else would we want to know? On history, as always, we want to make sure we get a detailed history of present illness. What is the duration of fever, specifically in relation to the dates of travel and timing of symptom onset? And what are the characteristics of the diarrhea? And are there any other symptoms associated, such as other gastrointestinal, neurological, or respiratory symptoms? We need to um, ask the patient about any medical problems that they may have, especially anything that might make them immunocompromised. Are they up to date with their vaccinations? And did they get any pre-travel vaccinations or medications? Did they have any recent antibiotics? And find out more about their specific travel history. Where exactly did they travel? When and what did they do during their trip? Were there any pertinent exposures? So for example, what was the setting that they were in? Was it urban or rural? Was there any freshwater exposure? And what about ingestions? Did they eat any raw or undercooked meat or fish? Drink untreated water? Or perhaps did they have any unpasteurized milk or cheeses? So travel, traveler's diarrhea is quite common, affecting 30 to 70% of travelers, depending on the destination and duration of travel. It was traditionally thought that traveler's diarrhea could be prevented by following simple recommendations, like making sure that food items are boiled, cooked, and peeled. However, studies have found that people who follow these rules may still become ill. A likely contributing factor is substandard hygiene practices in local restaurants. As you can see on this slide here, traveler's diarrhea can be caused by bacteria, viruses, or protozoa. And bacteria are the predominant risk, causing up to 80 to 90% of disease. The most common bacteria involved are E. coli, Campylobacter, Shigella, and Salmonella. And in terms of viruses, they cause about 5 to 15% of infections, mainly norovirus, rotavirus, and astrovirus. Finally, protozoa cause about 10% of travelers' diarrhea, um, the main culprit being Giardia, with Entamoeba histolytica and Cryptosporidium um, being relatively uncommon causes. It's important to recognize the timing of symptoms in relation to the potential ingestion, as this can help you pinpoint what the etiology might be. So toxins from bacteria generally cause symptoms very quickly within hours of ingestion. Bacteria or viruses have an incubation period of about six to 72 hours, while protozoal pathogens are slower to manifest symptoms and generally have an incubation period of one to two weeks. So they would rarely present in the first few days of travel. 
Now in regards to testing, usually diagnostic testing is not recommended in most cases of uncomplicated traveler's diarrhea. However, we should send some stool testing for patients if treatment may be indicated. These would be patients who have diarrhea accompanied by fever, bloody or mucoid stools, severe abdominal pain, or signs of sepsis. And this would be looking for infections such as Salmonella, Shigella, Campylobacter, Yersinia, Shigatoxin-producing E. coli, C. difficile, Giardia, and Cryptosporidium. You can send a stool culture, ova and parasites, and a PCR-based gastrointestinal panel if that's available to you. In regards to treatment, the first step is to manage any dehydration or sepsis. Oral rehydration therapy is first-line management for mild to moderate symptoms of dehydration. It's important to note that beverages with high sugar content, like apple juice, actually can cause um, an osmotic diarrhea if consumed in large quantities, so it, it would be important to counsel our patients against this. Of course, if your patient has more severe dehydration, any evidence of altered mental status or signs of shock, or if they have failed oral rehydration therapy, they should be seen in the acute care setting for IV fluid resuscitation and empiric treatment. The Infectious Disease Society of America recommends empiric antibacterial treatment for patients with severe illness who are ill with fever, abdominal pain, and bloody diarrhea, or those who have recently traveled internationally with fever and or signs of sepsis. Empiric antibiotics should either be a fluoroquinolone, such as ciprofloxacin or azithromycin, depending on local susceptibility patterns and travel history. For example, we know that in Southeast Asia, um, pathogens have been known to be resistant to fluoroquinolones, so azithromycin may be a better choice in those cases. It's important to note that most cases of traveler's diarrhea should resolve within two weeks. So if symptoms persist beyond that, we should be evaluating for other disease processes. Um, as I mentioned, intestinal parasitic infections may have a longer incubation period and more prolonged course, so they should be evaluated for at this point. Again, the most common parasitic cause of traveler's diarrhea is Giardia, and treatment would be metronidazole. Also, what should be a self-limited case of traveler's diarrhea may in fact unmask some underlying gastrointestinal diseases, such as celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease. So it's important to keep these on the differential and consider additional testing or endoscopy if indicated. Finally, patients can also have post-infectious conditions such as irritable bowel syndrome or transient lactase deficiency, which usually responds to lactose restriction. So going back to our patient, Tom, he presented with bloody diarrhea and fevers after international travel. He likely has a bacterial infection such as Salmonella, Shigella, or Campylobacter, and he should be treated with oral rehydration solution and empiric azithromycin. Let's now go over another case. We now have Mari. She is a 32-year-old female who presents to you with fever, chills, body aches, and fatigue. We find out that she has just recently traveled to Sierra Leone to visit her family. I want to take a moment here to talk about individuals who travel back to their country of origin to visit friends and family. These patients may be at higher risk for contracting infectious diseases for a number of different reasons. 
First, their duration of travel tends to be longer. Also, they are more likely to stay at friends' or relatives' houses, which, depending on socioeconomic status, may put them at higher exposure risks. There also tends to be an incorrect risk perception. They may consider themselves to be immune to endemic diseases, while in reality, any partial immunity that they might have developed while living there is lost pretty quickly after moving away. So now back to Mari, let's think about what additional things we need to ask her about. What exam findings should we be looking for? And how should we start our diagnostic evaluation? A note on epidemiology, GeoSentinel is a worldwide network of travel and tropical medicine clinics and provides the largest database for travel-related infections. Most recent data show that fi the five most common diagnoses for patients with systemic febrile illnesses who have traveled from the developing world included malaria as the top overall diagnosis, followed by dengue, typhoid and paratyphoid fevers, rickettsial disease, and chikungunya virus. I can't stress enough how important obtaining a good history is. As we talked about in the first case, in regards to the symptoms, it's important to find out about the duration and timing of fever in relation to the dates of travel and the timing of symptom onset. It's important to find out if the patient has a history of any impaired immunity from disease, for example, if they have HIV or asplenia, or if they're on certain medications which may put them at risk um, for a lowered immune response, or also if they're pregnant, which may put them at higher risk for disease complications. We want to know if they've received any pre-travel immunizations, if they were prescribed any malaria chemoprophylaxis, and also if they were, what was their compliance with this? It's also important to ask if they were treated at a healthcare facility while they were traveling, particularly if they received any blood transfusions, had any injections for any reason, or had any dental or surgical procedures. Getting a detailed history on any pertinent exposure is key. We want to know where they stayed. Were they at local houses or tourist hotels? Was it in an urban area or rural? Did they go camping, hiking, walk in grassy areas on safari expeditions? Were they exposed to any mosquito bites or any other insect bites or even any other animals in general? Did they go caving or were they around any excavation or construction sites? Did they have any fresh water exposure? So that might include swimming or boating or wading in rivers. What about any ingestions of any potentially contaminated food or water? Did they have any high-risk sexual activity? We also want to consider possible tuberculosis or COVID exposures, such as working in a healthcare center or being in crowded areas. In regards to the travel history, make sure to ask about all regions that they have traveled to in the last year and make sure to specifically ask about any layovers or short stops as patients may not um, readily give this information to you. Particularly, note any areas where malaria and dengue are endemic or any areas of recent disease outbreaks. We want to clearly define the dates of travel in relation to the timing of symptom onset and duration of fever. 
And it's important for us as healthcare providers to be aware of or look up typical incubation periods. So for example, two to six days for things like Shigella, Campylobacter, Salmonella, about one week for Rickettsia, about four to eight days for Dengue, seven to 18 days for Typhoid, and about two weeks for Malaria. Performing a comprehensive physical exam is also key, as this can provide some really important diagnostic clues. You want to carefully examine the retina, lymph nodes, heart, lungs, abdomen, including the liver and spleen, genital area, and extremities, and also make sure to perform a really good and comprehensive neurologic exam and skin exam. Um, on the picture to the right, you can see the typical rash that is seen in dengue fever. Hepatomegaly, as shown in the middle image, can be indicative of viral hepatitis or parasitic disease. And on the right, you can see an example of rose spots, which are bacterial emboli to the skin. And this is typically seen in patients with typhoid and paratyphoid fever. Patients presenting with fever and systemic symptoms will have a broad differential. It's important to focus on infections that can be rapidly life-threatening or highly contagious. We also, though, want to make sure to keep um, non-infectious causes on our differential, including things like pulmonary embolus, which again, travel might put them at risk for, um, or drug fever. And of course, it may also be a non-travel-related illness. In regards to labs, we should start with a basic workup that is comprehensive, including complete blood count with differential, a full chemistry panel, and liver function tests. Blood and urine cultures are certainly reasonable to get as well, and getting a chest x-ray would be important if they have any sort of respiratory symptoms. The image on the right shows patchy opacifications and bilateral hilar lymphadenopathy which can be nonspecific, but could also be a clue to pulmonary tuberculosis. So based on your history, exam, and differential, you should consider sending special testing. For example, if there's any question to possible malaria, thick and thin blood smears are the diagnostic gold standard and should be sent. You should also consider sending antibodies or antigens for specific diseases like dengue, chikungunya, rickettsia, or histoplasma, depending on, again, your history and suspicion. You should consider HIV testing, especially for patient has had risks. And for concern of infectious diarrhea, like we had mentioned previously, especially if it's bloody or prolonged, stool cultures, fecal leukocytes, and ovin parasite testing should be sent. Respiratory symptoms should prompt sputum culture and consideration of respiratory viral testing as well as tuberculosis testing. Now back to our patient Mari. Although she was initially seen in the outpatient setting with relatively mild symptoms, her condition unfortunately worsened over the next few days and she ended up presenting to the emergency department with worsening fever, lethargy, and respiratory distress, thus prompting admission to the hospital. Fortunately, her astute physicians um, recognized her risks 
and sent off blood smears for malaria. And those blood smears did confirm the diagnosis of malaria and she was treated appropriately and fortunately recovered from her illness. So when should we consider admission or seek expert consultation? Patients with any inpatient needs, such as dehydration requiring IV fluids, sepsis or shock, should certainly be sent to the emergency department for further management. In general, admission with infectious disease consult is not unreasonable for most travelers with undiagnosed febrile illness, especially if there's the possibility of a serious condition like malaria or typhoid. Consider also discussing with an infectious disease expert before deciding to treat as an outpatient, as some infections can present with very mild symptoms initially and then rapidly progress over hours to days. So in conclusion, please do give travel advice frequently and often. Know that the CDC website is a really great resource with a wealth of helpful and up-to-date information. And remember that while common things are common, do recognize that the returning traveler may have some additional risks and, ex and exposures to be aware of while you do your diagnostic workup. So we want to make sure to ask the right questions and know when further evaluation and treatment is needed. Thank you. Thank you both so much. That was super helpful. So now I know I need to you know, talk to my patients at least six weeks in advance of their travel. And then um, thank you so much, Sharon, for all the tips on evaluating returning travelers. And it sounds like just like any, any other aspect of medicine, history is really key. So um, I have a question for you, Sharon. Um, now, what about adventure travel? You know, a lot of people go on these trips and wanna do some really fun things like uh, climb tall mountains or go scuba diving. Are there certain chronic diseases that could be exacerbated by adventure, like or adventurous activities that we should be aware about? Sure, that's a really great great question because, um, as you mentioned, um, a lot of people want to travel to to experience these new things. Um, of course, in regard you know in regards to adventurous activities, patients um, should be counseled, of course, to certainly avoid any unnecessary risks. Right. Um, one example, though, might be scuba diving is really a popular activity that a lot of um, individuals uh, like to partake in, especially in exotic places. Mm -hmm. um, it is important to recognize that scuba diving does put a lot of physiologic stress on the body, mm -hmm. um, including pressure changes and cardiovascular stress as well. Um, some conditions to think about with scuba diving, um, it's definitely contraindicated in pregnancy at really all stages of pregnancy for those reasons, um, could cause harm to the, the growing fetus. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, um, any patients with chronic lung disease like asthma or COPD, um, if they are really severe or not really well controlled, um, scuba diving would also be contraindicated in that case. Um, and something else to think about is if if uh, if people do partake in scuba diving, um, they might want to be careful about air travel afterwards um, due to all of the, the pressure changes and everything while scuba diving. They should generally not fly um, about 24 hours after scuba diving. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, thinking about pregnancy, too, uh, more in general, um, they should pregnant patients should always be aware of any activities that might put them at risks for falling or injury. Um, so things like rock climbing and skiing would probably be um, recommended against as well. 
Um, in addition, uh, patients who have seizure disorders um, would probably want to talk to their neurologist before partaking in any um, risky or adventurous activities as well. Um, just keeping in mind, you know, are there is there seizures under good control? Are they an appropriate mm -hmm. treatment, or might they avoid those things? Mm -hmm. um, I can comment a little bit on air travel as well. Um, okay. So, you know, patients that might be um, requiring supplemental oxygen on a chronic basis um, might have some additional things to think about with air travel. Um, they, we would want to make sure that they have an appropriate oxygen concentrator and battery pack that they can take with them on the plane. Mm -hmm. And it's important also to think about um, you know, higher elevations, so whether on the airplane or whether hiking or some other activities, um, that patients may have a higher oxygen need at those higher elevations. And so they would definitely want to talk to their pulmonologist. And um, something that I learned recently was that pulmonary, some pulmonary function lab tests can actually do some altitude simulation testing um, before the trip that cool. patients can do. That's awesome, had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, you know, speaking of altitude a little bit, um, I understand there's a medication, acetazolamide, that we can give to some patients who will be rapidly ascending into high altitude. Is that recommended for anyone who wants that or are there specific people that we should be targeting? Is that a question you're able to answer? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, and I think that is that is something that um, when we are preparing for patients for, for travel, that we can certainly prescribe for them and they mm -hmm. can certainly um, take with them if they need. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Okay. And then, um, you know, I, I know you've mentioned pregnancy a couple of times. Mm -hmm. So, you know, definitely be careful, talk to your OB, but is travel while pregnant, um, a situation that puts them at an, uh, pregnant women at an increased risk for pregnancy complication or miscarriage or things of that nature? I would say not not in general, um, but except for those reasons that I mentioned previously. Mm -hmm. um, generally, uh, we do recommend travel in the second trimester mm -hmm. um, because typically at that point, patients are feeling like they have more energy. Maybe they don't have the morning sickness anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's not uh, too close to that third trimester where they may be closer to delivery. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah, you don't want to be stuck in a in a foreign location with a, a preemie. <laughs> um, now, Allison, uh, thank you so much for going over a lot of those pre-trip um, recommendations, including the vaccinations. Um, now, as a primary care provider, I definitely don't, you know, I don't um, have all of those um, vaccinations that you mentioned, like typhoid. Um, what are some ways that people can find those vaccines? Is the local health department um, a resource, or or do people really need to check travel clinics specifically? Well, in general, at least here in Columbus, <clears throat> our travel, our health department is not able to um, have the bandwidth to cover travel. Um, so that's not a local resource that mm -hmm. could be in, in your community. So I can't speak to that for sure. However, um, most of the vaccinations, certainly common things that are common vaccines, I certainly recommend patients to obtain those from their provider. And then any of the more specific vaccines, they would need to seek a travel clinic. Those would are typically um, paid for out of pocket. Okay. It certainly can be considered to 
get a reimbursement from that from their insurance, but I can't speak to that because all insurance plans are different about what, what they would cover and, and not. But it could be a limitation to some of our travelers mm -hmm. um, that, you know, that's an additional cost to the, there already can be um, uh, impressive costs for travel abroad, um, for air travel and things like that. So they may need to consider that as well. Okay, and then, you know, looking at the list of vaccinations that you had on your slide, I noticed some of them like hepatitis A, hepatitis B. I mean, it could take a while to get somebody caught up on those vaccines. So um, I would imagine that six weeks wouldn't be enough time to, you know, complete a course of hepatitis A. Um, what do you do in those situations? Is it still worthwhile to give that first dose or um, do you then complete the dose when they return even, even not knowing if they will have any future travel? Yes. In, in, in cases where they um, are not going to be fully immunized from something, a hepatitis A is a great example because many of our older patients did not receive that, like children now are receiving mm -hmm. in their routine immunizations. So absolutely, I would give the first dose because there are some patients who probably are fully immune from one dose, but because we know that it takes two doses to get the majority of our patients fully immune, it would be very reasonable to start that I mean, there's still their risk of hepatitis A is is nowhere near 100%, right? That's just a potential <laughs> right. risk. So, um, and also that immunization, once they're immunized, should last for life. And so getting them started now, especially for many of my patients who are travelers, they tend to travel over and over again. And so getting them in, immunized as they start their kind of lifelong travel um, gets them ready for that. Sure. And then um, I like that you mentioned the cost, that we need to consider the cost can be um, out of pocket and therefore the patient needs to figure that into the overall trip cost. But what about the counseling piece? Is that covered by insurance? Most of the time, if they would seek that from their primary care provider, I have never had any denials. I'll okay. say that. I've never had <laughs> denials helpful. for that. So I, I do put in their pre-travel counseling. And then, of course, I would also comment on their health conditions that we discussed, just like in a routine visit, mm -hmm. that we discussed those in, in relation to their pre-travel counseling. Mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. as I said, I've never had that denied as a claim. Okay. And so I think it's reasonable that it seems to be covered by insurance. Mm -hmm. And that would be at the primary care provider. I will say that most of the travel clinics are cash only. And if they need to seek advice from a travel clinic, they will also have to pay for that counsel um, again, and that may not be covered. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you know, speaking of the medications and chronic conditions, it was really helpful to know we need to have those in the carry-on luggage. Um, is there anything special we need to note for controlled substances? Um, you know, I would have your prescription in the original bottle with the dates um, that are indicated. You may want to have a list. I've not asked patients to take a letter or anything like that from their provider, but that would not be unreasonable to, mm -hmm. to consider if okay. you are worried. Um, I would say, I guess I would say I don't have a lot of patients who've been traveling internationally with significant controlled substances, though they may take something like occasionally for sleep or something like that they may take while traveling. Mm -hmm. um, I've never heard of any instances of concerns or problems, but certainly want to make sure um, that they consider all those risks potentially. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. Now, Sharon, it seems like every couple of months we have a new emerging illness. You know, we have COVID, we had Ebola, mm -hmm. Mpox. When do we need to start thinking about something a little more exotic or new in patients that are returning from travel? 
That's a really good question, especially um, these days with recent events and everything. Um, and I think it really brings home the point, again, that we really need to make sure that we take a good history of our patients, including a really good travel um, history, really detailed travel history with all of those points that I had outlined previously. Um, especially when a patient's uh, disease course or illness course is not progressing as expected, that's when you definitely want to expand, like with anything, but that's when you definitely want to expand your differential um, and start thinking about those potentially more exotic things. Mm -hmm. um, I would say it's important for us as medical providers to stay on top of the news as well and any emerging diseases that we might hear about, um, whether it's internationally, nationally, or on the local level. Mm -hmm. Um, and in addition, U.S. Uh, travel state advisories are another great resource. You can find them on travel.state.gov. Mm -hmm. And you can actually look up um, by the area that your patient has traveled to any potentially emerging diseases um, that might be in that area that might not have reached um, our local news outlets yet. Okay, perfect. Um, is there a, like, can, for example, the State Department website, is that a resource for patients to find local care if they should need that while they're traveling? That's a good question. I believe so. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one last question. You know, COVID is, uh, like you said, common things being common. COVID is still out there. It's still uh, being transmitted. And so a common question that I'm getting lately from patients who are traveling is, should I take antivirals with me in case I get COVID while I'm traveling? What do you usually say to that? I would probably say um, that they should seek medical care before self, um, you know, self, I guess, self-medicating or treating with, with <laughs> medications, um, but definitely a good conversation to have with their primary care provider before travel. Perfect. Thank you guys so much. That was really, that was a lot of information that you covered and I really appreciate it. Thank All you. right. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. Allison. Great, thank you. I think the most important things is to, for patients to seek travel advice early and frequently. It might be a good time to even bring it up at your wellness visit with a patient. Do you have any planned travel for this year? And the other key takeaway point is that the CDC is a wealth of information. Use that resource for you and your patients to learn all about their uh, planned travel of um, and country and uh, use that for information. And Sharon? So again, um, remembering that while common things are common, we do need to recognize that a returning traveler um, might have some additional risks and exposures that we should be aware of in our diagnostic workup. So it is really important to make sure to ask the right questions, look for the right exam findings, and know when additional evaluation and management is needed. Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive both CME credit and ABIM MOC points for watching by logging onto our website, ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Don't forget to submit any topic ideas for next season by filling out that needs assessment survey on our website. Join us again next week when my guests, Dr. Michael Baria and John DeWitt are here to discuss common knee complaints. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.